Salam and welcome to our podcast, Muslims on Fire. Stories from ordinary Muslims doing extraordinary things. With your host, Maruf. Dear listener, Based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Maruf, your host. Welcome to the show, Muslims on Fire. Today I have a, a friend of mine, a brother of mine from US, Nader bin Nasib. He is a Muslim parenting coach. He's He has... Not one, not two, not three, but ten kids, mashallah. And um, he also had this own show at Huda TV. And he also appeared, I think, a couple of times on Dean's show. If you follow Brother Eddie as well. Uh, when it comes to Muslim parenting, I look up to him as one of the experts. And uh, today we're going um, gonna to deep dive with him and to get to know his life story, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, Brother Nadir. Welcome to the show. Alhamdulillah, definitely a pleasure to be here, Akhi. Thank you. How are things? <laughs> Alhamdulillah, things are well and fast moving as always. That's good. You're always busy with something. That's good. Inshallah. <laughs> so, um, well, you know the show. What we do is we uh, get to know you, you know, as your friend, your life story. Hopefully we can learn a thing too, you know, to improve our lives better. So uh, having said that, so Brother Nadir, can you tell us about your early childhood and childhood memories, what you remember and what do you think that shaped you who you are when you're looking back at your childhood? Go ahead. Okay, good stuff, good stuff. Well, it's always a challenge to find out where to start, but let's start at the beginning. At the <laughs> beginning, parents, yeah. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, uh, my, my parents were teenagers, actually, when I was born. So they were 16 years old uh, when I was born, so you could already imagine that um, there can be some challenges um, right there just in that part. And, of course, you know, as you mentioned, I'm from the U.S. And my father's African-American and my mother's Puerto Rican. So a little bit of a, a different culture where Spanish was the, the main tongue of my mother. And, of course, you know, English um, here of my father, but born pretty much into, you know, average household or just middle class, a little below uh, middle class living and one of the things my parents, you know, wanted to do at the bequest or request of my grandparents is to, you know, make sure I had some type of good education or good schooling. So they enrolled me into the same uh, school my father went to, which was a local Christian school. So I was raised um, in the Christian family and went to a Christian grade school and, and high school. I so see. that was mainly my upbringing. Okay. Okay. Um, so you mentioned you, you, um, I, I think one of the things for me that's strange, I guess, is that 
you know, usually the kids, especially like uh, countries like U.S., they go to normal school. But in your case, you went to a Christian school right from the beginning. So there was, I would say, your family were leaned towards Christianity a bit more than other families. Is that correct? Yes, actually. My family, they were, there's a, you have to really kind of understand the dynamics of the U.S. when it came to, when it comes to um, racism and slavery in ways that, um, systems are are set up. I mean, the U.S. public school system was designed based on the Prussian system, which is you know made to per- pretty much make obedient workers and good soldiers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, the challenge is that with racism and, and redlining and property taxes, the way that schools are funded, that if you live in an area that is not affluent, then you have less tax money to pay for the schools. Mm-hmm. So you get less quality teachers and overcrowded classrooms. And so on. So the the Milwaukee public school system, I mean, even right now, actually has the largest gap and the lowest achievement scores across the entire country. So even though, you know, and my parents, they probably didn't know that, but I know my grandparents did because they moved from um, down south, uh, what's called the Great Migration after slavery is a lot of people went came from down in the south in the United States and they moved up north. And, and we ended up here in Wisconsin that's just right outside of Chicago saying I have a lot of relatives even in Chicago. So the school system here, the public school system is really horrible and they wanted to have a better life for, for me and my siblings. So they enrolled us into um, a private Christian parochial school. Not that they were super religious or anything like that, but they wanted to make sure that at least the academic part mm-hmm. was better because of smaller classroom sizes and, and stuff okay. like that. And the, their belief system was just a bonus with that when it came to Christianity. Okay, I understand. I mean, well, I, I think uh, their their expectation was probably when you grow up, you become a good Christian, I guess. But somehow it didn't turn out that way. What happened <laughs> in between? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I actually studied more than my parents studied. I studied more than my grandparents studied is really what happened because in all actuality, um, learning the Bible every day in school and you be, you begin to form questions. And I remember like second grade was pivotal for me because I remember asking myself, you know, what is my purpose here? What was before this life? Hmm. You know, and I also had questions about um, creation because we were told and, and taught in Christianity, God created the earth or the uh, the world and everything in six days. And on the seventh day he rested. And that's why, um, they have church either or they have the Sabbath day mm-hmm. or they have Sunday. There's mm-hmm. this the day of rest and day of worship. And I never understood that because I asked myself, you know, okay, why why would God, who's supposed to be almighty, all knowing, all strong, all why would powerful. he need to rest? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Why is God tired? Like who was taking care of the rest of creation if God rested? Like, you know, and I remember having this in, in second grade and I was just told to, you know, have faith and God works in mysterious ways and you know, you don't question those types of things and stuff like that. And I never gotten a, I didn't receive a satisfactory answer. So I continued my quest throughout school. And as I got older, I recognized more people gave lip work or they were mainly hypocrites. They, so they would say one thing with their mouth, say what they believe, but their actions weren't congruent with that. I see. So that really affected me as well. So you, you always begin to see like the difference between what people say and what people do, I guess. Absolutely. I, I think one of the first times in, in most long, I guess most lasting times was when I found out that Santa Claus wasn't real. 
<laughs> my parents, you know, when it came to Christmas and they had a celebration in the church and all this stuff and they didn't have the Santa Claus stuff, but they had the Christmas tree and many other things. But my parents, of course, like many hundreds of millions of people here in the U.S., celebrated Christmas. Mm -hmm. So they would tell this tale about Santa Claus and everything else. And I remember I was five years old. Yeah. And my father woke me up. Like I was sleeping. It was like Christmas day or Christmas morning, woke me up and took me on a porch, maybe like one, two o'clock in the morning and had me looking up in the sky and there was snow on a porch and it was cold and I'm looking up in the stars. And he told me Santa Claus just left, you know, and then I came back in the house and then I saw there was, there were toys and there was a little bicycle and all kind of other stuff there. And I'm just so happy that Santa Claus brought these gifts and left them and stuff like this. So I had all of this emotion and affinity um, put toward that story because of the trust of my parents. Mm. And then come to find out that they were lying. Mm. I felt really betrayed. And, but I couldn't tell them that at such a young age when I found okay. out he actually was a fairy tale. But then I began to question these what things, else? you know, things that they've taught <laughs> me. And exactly. And I'm not, you know, it's the amazing. Easter money and <laughs> it's amazing. Like looking back now, like how small. I mean, I mean, what they were telling you, they were not thinking. I guess that okay, one day he'll find out. You get his point. It's a big lie. But instead of saying, okay, let, let, let's tell a little bit white lie, you know, to make the lie more interesting. But it ends up. So this is a lesson for all of us, I guess, for especially the parents, that how little or small or there is nothing, no such a thing as small or little white lie, because either things are lie or the truth right I think absolutely that's, that's that's, now and one of the things is that when you're dealing with your children and people you have very intimate relationships with that any no matter there's not even little because it was huge and the reason it's huge is because I had a lot of emotional um feelings attached to it but when a foundation is is cracked mm-hmm. i mean it just starts with a small split you may not even be able to see it but mm-hmm. that's all it takes to start the crumbling of that foundation is that crack and that's how I felt. You know, I was I felt betrayed. That was one of the biggest things I knew. And my mother and my father were teaching me these things. And that also caused me to I didn't question the religion as much because they still believe that. And we still went to the services. But I began to study it more. I guess there was a subconscious. I just wanted to make sure it was the truth. Mm-hmm. And the more I dug and the farther I dug and the lack of congruence between those who believed in it, those who preached it and everything else. And then my behavior as I grew older, mm-hmm. I started recognizing, now I can't just do this Christianity, which is super easy because all you have to do is believe mm-hmm. and be baptized or do communion. And, and hey, everything you've done has already been paid for. So it doesn't matter what bad you do. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus will forgive you because he died for your sin. I mean, it's a really simple religion. Yeah. So why would so, you, why people go to church then if it's done? Exactly. Or why don't they wish for death? Because, you know, gen- paradise is supposed to be so much better. Why don't you just wish for death? Why stay in this life where there's pain? <laughs> you know, so there's there's questions I had with that. I, I mean, I had questions about, you know, why are we eating pig? But the Old Testament says don't eat pig. And then I get answers like, well, that's the Old Testament. Uh-huh. And, and Jesus brought the New Testament. And then I come back with, well, the Ten Commandments are the Old Testament, too. Here's the thing. Yeah, so I just, just I, I have curiosity. Okay, I, I, I knew that, that the Old Testament says no. But in this... New Testament, it doesn't say yes either, do they? Does it? No, actually, it says the opposite. <laughs> I think it's Matthew 25, where Jesus is alleged to have said, um, I didn't come to change the law of yeah. Moses, but I came to fulfill it every iota. Every yeah. iota. So he didn't come to change anything. He says it's out of his own mouth in their book. Yeah. Right. You know, but people do what they tend to do. Yeah. And, you know, again, that, that caused me to kind of distance myself 
from those who followed the book because I believed, hey, this, you know, this is supposed to be the word of God. So why are people, you know, causing these different things to happen? And why is it okay to have these girlfriends or you're cheating on your wife or, you know, all of these types of things mm-hmm. began to affect me as I got older. And then at the same time, my house was a toxic household. Mm-hmm. So I'm living in a household where my father was an alcoholic, used different drugs throughout the house. There was infidelity going on, mm-hmm. you know, um, with him, but also my mother, you know, so there were different things going on. Because again, I, like I said, I was born to them when I was, when they were 16. 16 yeah. Yeah. You know, they got so, married at 21. Wow. So, I mean, like, look, so I can see that from the childhood, it's not been easy for you. In answer, like, I mean, all, all going through, I guess. Childhood Questions are sponsored by Ali Huda. Ali Huda is a video on demand streaming platform for Muslim children where they can watch cartoons and shows while learning about Islam the fun way. If you are a Muslim parent, this will be one of your best investments. Visit www.alihuda.com for a seven day free trial. Now back to the show. So I'm just trying to analyze like you are looking at the life and all these lenses. And you, you, you try to be a Christian, I guess, as much as you can. But still, there's some question to answer. There's still something that urges you to, 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 you know, to deep, dig deeper, right? So, is it is it how you discovered Islam, or you were other? So, well, I just want to know, like, you know, like, like, like transition, the rediscovering well, period. The first time I ever heard about Islam, the first time I ever heard about Islam, I was in eighth grade, hmm. and the pastor was teaching us about different religions and different sects. <laughs> and he was talking about, we were, I was a Lutheran at the time and he was talking about Baptists and Protestants and Catholics and a number of different things. And he had, he drew a diagram on the overhead projector mm-hmm. and he put like a circle with a dot and the dot was the saving truth. Mm-hmm. And he put um, like different ovals or different shapes and those that kind of encompassed the saving truth, but they might've been off on some other, ideas Mm -hmm. so he you know he put that christians teach the saving truth basically but you know there there are many differences however he said um in islam he said muslims they don't believe that jesus died on the cross for your sins and everything else Mm -hmm. so you know they're not teaching any of the saving truth and they're gonna go to hell so i'm like wow okay well they must be stupid you know that's my first response (laughs) obviously like doesn't believe this about Jesus. They're just that's just dumb, mm-hmm. and I remember that. <clears throat> because if you believe, any... everything becomes easy, though, right? Look, if you believe, and everything is easy, so you don't have to do anything. Exactly, and you don't have to prove anything. You don't have Why to inter- <laughs> nothing. You know, an innocent man was supposedly executed, which happens unfortunately all the time. Yeah, but he's supposed to pay for everything, and that's that. You know, oh, and God incarnate. So that was the first time I heard about it, and again, I wasn't interested at the time. But as I got older, I was around, my parents got divorced when I was 12. So the fatherly structure that at least held kind of discipline in place and some order was no longer there. And I was coming to my young adolescence, you know, coming to being a young man, at least so I thought, <laughs> but mm-hmm. was immature. So I'm hanging around more with other friends. I mean, I first smoked my first joint, I had some weed when I was 14 years old, you know, I was experimenting with alcohol, just different things. And... Um, I knew that my lifestyle wasn't right. So even going to church or something, I may go every once in a while with my mother or, and I would see that there were more women than men, hmm. you know, and I didn't agree with certain tenets like turning the other cheek or not standing up for justice or being a pacifist, 
it was very difficult to see in my community um, the different oppression that was going on, whether it be police brutality. I mean, I experienced my first time being brutalized police when I was uh, 15 years old when I took my mother's car and returned it when she was at work and, and was joyriding. I mean, officers um, arrested me and took me to the station and beat me up pretty much with the flashlight. I doesn't, you know, it so, doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if you just borrowed your mom's car, why would the officers took you? Well, because she was at work. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I took her car without her permission. Oh, I see. So she thought it was stolen. Oh, I see. Okay. So she reported it stolen because I was out there with my friends and doing things I wasn't supposed to do. But I returned the car before she got off work. I see. Little did I know that she was going to take a lunch break and need her car. Oh, so that's why. I parked it and I was already walking away. They didn't catch me in the car. I was already walking away, but I was underage and there's a curfew Mm -hmm. for people under 18. You're supposed to be at home. Mm -hmm. And it's like three o'clock in the morning and I'm walking away from the area. So they put me and my my friend ran and they got me. And then that's, you know, they took me to the station, beat me up, gave me a ticket and stuff like that. So experiencing these things, you know, leave an imprint on somebody because I was young and pretty immature and I shouldn't have done it, <laughs> but mm-hmm. regardless, that doesn't mean, you know, I go to church and everything's just going to be okay. Or, you know, I didn't really feel that I was doing right. I knew I wasn't doing, I knew I was doing wrong, but Christianity was just saying, Hey, all you have to do is believe or just have communion and you'll be forgiven and everything will be okay. I see. And I didn't, didn't go with that. I wasn't I rocking with that. I see. I mean, look, I mean, in the beginning, right, it was easier to believe because if you believe everything goes well, cool. But there must be a moment in your life, I guess, when you no longer can just take this belief any longer, right? Because it cannot be that simple. Somehow you realize that that's why I guess today you're Muslim. Isn't it so? Or there must be some transition. I just trying to No, understand. absolutely. Well, the transition occurred between these teenage years of basically 15 and 17. Okay. But what occurred again, I was do, I was being immature. I was drinking. I was going out partying as a kid, teenager and so on. And I end up um, a guy introduced me to Islam. First mm-hmm. of all, my mother was dating this guy. Um, he was Muslim, but he, he was a he wasn't a practicing Muslim. The only thing that was Muslim about him is that he said he was Muslim. I see. But <laughs> a lot of people that was a part of the organization or the street gang were claiming that as well. I didn't know anything about it. I saw the movie Malcolm X mm-hmm. in 1982 when I was 16. And I respected Malcolm and I said, wow, you know, I like how the women dress and stuff. And that was, that was pretty much it. I respected him as a man and someone to look up to that, that spoke the truth and everything else. And, you know, it affected me in that fashion, but I wasn't interested in following Elijah Muhammad or anything like that. It didn't mm-hmm. lead me to follow it, but it left an imprint on my heart that that's a strong man that fought for what he believed in mm-hmm. and he made change. So I saw that and I heard about people converting and becoming Muslims while they're in jail. Mm-hmm. So he told me about Islam and I rejected it because of who he was, mm-hmm. first of all. Because you were looking at the actions, right? I guess. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking at the way he was behaving. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's, if he's a Muslim, he's dating my mother. They're not married, mm-hmm. you know, and then he would carry guns and do other stuff that just wasn't right. And he was really mm-hmm. sneaky. I see. So um, I said, I'm not giving up my women, my weed, or my baby back ribs. Yeah, because, like because because he's not giving a woman, why would should you, right? He's, he's he, I mean, what I'm trying to understand is that yeah, even though he said he was Muslim, but he was dating another person, right? In this case, your mom. and uh, But he's teaching the otherwise. It doesn't make sense, does it? Right, and he didn't come with any ideas from Islam. He just said, hey, you know, Islam is the truth and this and this and that. I'm like, that's not a way to really convince somebody. <laughs> just to say, hey, 
you know, Islam is the truth. You should, you should be Muslim. You should check this out. That's, you know, it's pretty crude. So I wasn't interested in it. So what I did is I just disowned organized religion. I sure. said, you know what? I know the way I'm living is not right. And it can't be just so simple to just um, drink blood and eat flesh and communion mm-hmm. to go ahead and just be saved. And I'm okay with what I'm doing. I can hurt as many people. I can rob as many people. I can carjack. I can smoke weed. I can sell drugs. I can do this. And everything is okay because Jesus died for my sins. Mm. So that makes no sense at all. And Jesus never said that, you know, mm. either in the Bible. So I was like, okay, well, I know that there's a God. There's a bigger purpose to all of this. So I disown it. And I went on my own search. I studied all ancient African comedic religions, um, all Sarah Set society, studied Buddhism, even looked at some Hinduism stuff. Just I looked at anything I could find on spirituality mm-hmm. and God. And... <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. And I wasn't satisfied with what I seen until I got into some trouble. I had um I got arrested for um, what was I doing? Uh, some carjacking stuff that had happened. But I was carrying a pistol. I was 16 years old and I had a pistol on me. And I was not supposed to obviously being underage, but I did. And I got arrested. So the same guy that I was talking about that introduced me to Islam prior to. He was in prison for his behavior and what he was already doing. Sure. But he sent me a book um, called Welcome to Islam. It was like a 700-something page book. And I digested the book in three days because the book's premise was that it was going to dive into the monotheistic origins of monotheistic religion. So it talked about the roots of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to get. I want to get at the roots, not at the, the branches or the outskirts. So mm-hmm. I saw... As I was going through the book, I'm seeing parts I can agree upon with different parts of Judaism, different parts of Christianity. But then when it came to Islam and it showed the simplicity and the magnificence of pure monotheism, I got it. And the way I saw that was reading in Surah Al-Ikhlas. I saw it and I read it and I said, this is what I believe. I mean, you know, chapter 112 of the Quran, I'm like, this is it. I believe this. You know, say here Allah is one. You know, Allah is self-sufficient, which means he doesn't eat or sleep. He doesn't need any dress or any uh, rest. There's no resting on the seventh day. You know, he begets not, nor is he begotten. Okay, so he doesn't have children. He's not the child of anyone. I believe this. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing co-equal or comparable unto him at all. And I read that in English, and I'm like, this is is deep. This is exactly what I believe. Yeah, that that becomes natural, right? It becomes natural, I guess, to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. There was no confusing trinity. There was no divinity between God, man, man, God. There's no confusions of my, uh, mother giving birth to God. And all of this stuff was out the window. But I'm like, this is what I believe right here. Summed up in a couple short sentences. It's simple. This is it. You know, so that at that point, I said, I consider myself a Muslim. Then I had to go on a journey to find out what that meant. You know, so and I look. So at this now. is what happened when you're in prison. Is that correct? No, I was in a detention oh, center detention, for yeah. juvenile. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. I haven't been to prison, but as a juvenile, you can't go to prison anyway. But I was in a detention center um, for a few months, and he sent that to me. So at the time and the energy and re- reevaluating my life because I didn't want to be like my uncles and other individuals. And I saw them, you know, some selling drugs, others using it, you know, being a byproduct of, um, you know, kind of government counterintelligence programs with mm. – with, um, you know, trying to stop the rise mm-hmm. of any type of unity among black people in particular that, you know, fight for the liberation. So the communities were flooded with drugs. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's mass incarceration. And I didn't want to go that same route because I could see 
the route they were going. I, I would witness it in the home. I would see different domestic violence. And you, um, you didn't like on. that future? No, not at all. I, I knew there had to be better than that. I mean, I, at 12 years old, just to backtrack a second, I believed in God. I had a deep, sincere belief in God. I know this. But on June 24th, uh, 1988, when I was leaving a corner store um, a block and a half from my house, I decided I was going to run across the street mm-hmm. before um, this car came. Before, you know, there was a bus that was parked in the corner and I ran out and the car was right there. Boom. Hit me in my left thigh. And I flew into the air and I landed on my side. How many loud? There was nothing broken, no, no major damage or anything, but I was just shaking from the adrenaline running through my body. And they wanted me to go to an ambulance and hospital. I refused. But I remember in the air, because time just seemed to stop. I remember praying. <laughs> it's like a Matrix praying. style, right? Matrix. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was just like Matrix. It was like, I saw this car. Next thing you know, I'm praying to Jesus. You know, I'm praying to God in Jesus' name. Yeah. Okay. And then I hit the ground. So I'm like, okay, I'm dead. You know, here's the car. I'm going to die. Hmm. That's what I was thinking. Or at least when I was in the air, that's why I made the prayer. Because I'm like, okay, I'm dead. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, life is over for me, right? <laughs> it was a bad decision. But I remember that. And at that point, I'm like, you know, life can go at any time. You know, it was a, a, a mortality moment for me. So I got a little more serious, even though I started doing some dumb things um, a couple years later, smoking my first joint, hanging around the wrong people. I still had that in my head, really about death. And I wanted some solid answers, answers I never received again since second grade until I read that when I was 16 years old. Mm. When I read Surah Tulikhlas. So, you know, th- that was the transition period there. So how long did it take you from that point? Let's say you're, you're in 16 years, you're in detention center. So you decided, then I think you, I guess that like, like you did take your Shahada officially somewhere or it was you, you were just, you know, that's it. I'm going to decide this. I'm going to, from yeah, today. I didn't take, right. I didn't know anything about the Shahada mm. at all, actually, till well over a year later. Um, but I was praying in English and got a little prayer book and all that okay. kind of stuff. So you but took it I, seriously I, then? Yeah, well I, well, I had to keep studying. Sure. So I studied. I went to the Nation of Islam location because I didn't know where Muslims worshipped or anything like that. So I was looking, trying to find the truth. Mm-hmm. And I went over there and I, found, I looked at their process of um, stuff with Farrakhan. I was not interested in that. Are you still there? I'm here. I'm here. I'm listening to you. Sorry about that. I get some notifications. Anyway, I, I I didn't like the idea of following or calling any human honorable, the honorable Elijah Muhammad, honorable Louis Fair kind of thing like that. I was not interested mm. in following a man because I know men will lead you astray, just like pastors and preachers and ministers mm. done in the church that I was part parts of. I wasn't interested in that, so I wanted to get to the roots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, exactly. I mean, why, why, why? That's one of the things Salas Monsala says. Well, why do you have to put people in between if you can go directly to God, Allah, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's what we were doing with the whole Jesus thing. You're, mm-hmm. And you don't recognize, for some reason, Christians just don't recognize the difference. You're praying to God, and then you say, in Jesus' name, you're using an intercessor. Mm-hmm. That's though that means these are two distinct entities, mm-hmm. you know. So I never understood that, never got an answer to that. So I didn't want to be uh, misguided by that. So I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and looked at how he broke off. Mm-hmm. Then I wanted to again go to the roots, like who is this Prophet Muhammad? You know, who is this man? 
mm-hmm. because again, I had believed in the Bible. So when I initially picked up the Quran after reading that book, Welcome to Islam, I was like, okay, I'm going to look in this book. I bet y'all can find errors. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't. And it also was very confusing because the Bible is written again in third person with a bunch of stories and tales and stuff like that. It's supposed to be written by men inspired by God. Mm-hmm. So when you read the Quran, the Quran is talking directly to you mm-hmm. from, you know, so it's direct from Allah Ta'ala. So it's a conversation, it's a, dialogue going on between you. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a, you know, it's not a transition of piece together story. Sometimes they like in the book of Ezekiel in the Bible, they can be very explicit and X-rated and stuff like that. None of this. There's an elegance, even in the English translation that we don't have. So it, it really blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And cause me to just be in it more and more and more. Then I want to find, okay, well, this is supposed to go from, from Allah to the angel Jabril to the Prophet Muhammad. Well, who is this Prophet Muhammad? Because mm-hmm. he's a man mm-hmm. and all men are fallible. So I want to find out. And then I kind of searched further and it led me to a certain community of Muslims um, that studied Islam. They were closer with the, I was with the Elijah Muhammad's son who kind of broke off from the nation and, and brought him around to a closer version of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was there and then there were some different things that they were saying. They were following him more than they were following the prophet Muhammad. So I kept on my study and my journey because again, I don't want a man to lead me astray. You're not my leader. Sure. Um, period. So then I studied a little bit more and I found that there was a masjid and a sister had given my wife and I, and my wife and I met my first wife and I met, um, mm-hmm. in high school was, as freshmen, and I was talking to her about Islam also when I was studying. She actually took a shahada before I did. Wow. <laughs> so, she was quick. <laughs> yeah, you know, and she was raised in a Christian school as well. We met at the Christian high school I was going to. But the sister gave us some information about Tawheed by Bilal Phillips, mm-hmm. and it was an entirely different understanding. Mm-hmm. So the fundamentals of Tawheed is what that book is called, right? Mm-hmm. I feel the hula by Bilal Phillips. So now I get introduced to pure Islam, find out who the Prophet Muhammad is and, and read the book, you know, the Sirah of the Prophet or Rahikam Akhtum, um, the sealed nectar. Mm. And then I began to develop a relationship with who, understanding who the Prophet was and how the Quran was revealed and how things get put in order. And then started learning about the history and of, um, you know, of Islam and how it spread and these different things. So now there was that sweetness of Iman where they kind of flooding in because this is the roots I found. Because if you go far past the roots, like of a, let's say, a spring coming out of the earth, that's where it's the most pure. But mm-hmm. as it goes and forms streams and rivers, and there'd be all kind of pollutants that get in it and so on. So there could be challenges by the time it gets to you. It could be a stagnant water. Sure. But the root is where it's pure. So when I found that, that's what I said I believe. And then that's what I found out Malcolm actually believed when he was a Muslim for 11 months before he was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, Rahim So. That is when I became Muslim officially, and I was about 17 and a half years old, and then got married at 19 years old because, again, I, I wanted to be on the right lifestyle, but I still had my girlfriend. Mm, that's cool. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes. So I mean, I'm like, no, I don't want to be like my parents. I see, I see. I, I'm really glad that you. So it was a different path. Do you struggle with Dean and Dunya balance in your life? Meet Salam.app a Muslim social network where your ego, nafs, is not in the center. It is a place to feed your soul with daily inspiration, to make new Muslim friends, and connect with Ummah. Visit www.salam.app and download free for your iPhone or Android.
you know, I mean, that, that's a very interesting story, like how you change your life from that to what you do today. I would say 180 degrees difference, right? You do have, mashallah, you have 10 kids, you do Muslim parenting, you coach people, parents, you have some courses as well. And actually, I would like to deep dive on the, 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 that part as well. You see, some people might have stopped there. You say, you say, okay, I'm a Muslim, that, that's, mashallah, that's, that's already great achievement, but you didn't stop that, you, you went ahead and learned, and today you're actually helping other Muslim parents to how to, you know, grow their, you know, educate their kids to be, you know, the next generation of Muslims, practicing Muslims, I guess. So how did that happen? What inspired you? Well, what inspired me was Islam because I had become a Muslim. So now I have something totally different. It was a brand new world. I never saw Muslims worship. I didn't know. I've never seen that when I was a kid. I didn't know how Muslim. The only time I saw a Muslim praying, I was, and I remember it so vividly, was uh, when I was 14 or 15 years old. I think it was 14. Yeah, it was a freshman in high school. And the Gulf War, the first Gulf War started mm-hmm. in Iraq. Yeah. And they showed this Muslim, they showed somebody, somebody was dead on the ground and somebody was uh, mourning over that person that was dead. And then it, it showed, then it cut to a scene of somebody that was praying. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it, it, it blew my mind because I'm like, OK, wow, this person is like praying. So I remember them praying and saying like Allahu Akbar or something like that. And I was like, at the time, I was like, yeah, we're going to war. We're going to, you know, kill Saddam or whatever I was saying, just, mm. you know, due to the societal conditioning, it didn't make any sense. But I, I remember seeing this person praying and it brought back to me the Bible, because in the Bible, all throughout it, you hear um, Jesus um, fell on his face and prayed or Abraham fell on his face and prayed. Moses fell on his face and prayed. And I was like, these people in the desert are on their face praying. But it never really went farther than that in my conscious, maybe my subconscious. But I do remember, you know, it from that perspective. So what caused me is like, OK, now I have a whole new lifestyle now. Mm-hmm. Now I know how the angels taught all the prophets how to pray. Now I need to learn how and what my goals are, where am I going, what I want to do for my family, because I want my family to be totally different than the household I grew up in. I don't want alcoholism, domestic violence, other um, abuses to be going on in the home. I want to raise children who are righteous. I want. I want to be the answer to the du'as and the prayers of my ancestors who were captured. They were enslaved. They lost their religion along the way. But I'm sure many of them prayed that we return to our deen and our strength. Mm-hmm. So I want to be the answer to their du'as. Sure. And in doing so, I had to learn Islam because my relatives didn't have it. It didn't exist. I'm still um, outside of, you know, my family that my nuclear family that <laughs> I'm married to and my mm-hmm. children, 99.9% of my relatives are not Muslims. I have one Puerto Rican cousin. Mm-hmm. She's Muslim. That's it. Okay. So, so even today, you, you're like, most of your family are still keep on doing what they're doing, right? Yes. I do have the, the, alhamdulillah, the honor, though, that of my brother, Rahimahullah, and my father, Rahimahullah, who did take the shahadas. Wow, mashallah. Even your father? Yes, and I, I did not expect that one at all. But my younger brother, he used to, when I first became Muslim, he used to just come with us and tag along. And me and a number of other brothers, we used to do um, Islamic music and rap back in the day and and so on with the Nasr Productions. So it was more of a political Islamic-based rap. Mm. He would come with us and travel. He'd see us pray. And there was never any pressure on him. And I gave him some materials that talked about um, 
a Christian Muslim dialogue and we talk, you know, about what Islam is and everything. And then one day after several months, he said, hey, I want to be Muslim, which, you know, touched my heart. I was really happy about that because I had given my mother books. I was doing dialogue to my mother. Mm-hmm. OK. And she was, you know, she could not keep up with the, the arguments or anything that I'm pointing out in the Bible because I know it better than her because she sent me to the Christian school. Sure. And I care for her. So I was obviously going to give her the truth. I gave her a book called Christian Muslim Dialogue, which just broke stuff down. A very thin book, very easy read about a conversation between a Muslim and a Christian. And she gave it to my brother. So she indirectly did that to my brother because she chose not to. <laughs> So my brother saw that and he went to Sunday school because he was still living with my mother and and she um, made him go to Sunday school. So he went in there and he started seeing these errors in the Bible and he told the Sunday school teacher, hey, I bet y'all can find errors. And the Sunday school teacher said, I bet you $50. Well, in front of the entire class, my brother proved that there were errors and the Sunday school teacher got very upset. And uh, my brother got suspended from going to the, to the class. And then he went back again and did it again. And then my mother got upset and he got kicked out of <laughs> out of the church. But, you know, shortly after that, he said, I want to become Muslim. So he became Muslim when he was 14. And um, unfortunately, well, you know, he, he died on time, but he was killed um, in 1997 due to a case of mistaken identity. Wow. It was actually a friend of mine who looked similar to us. He was light skinned and curly hair, except he was a little taller. He got into a fight with a rival gang wow. that was. With not a full gang, but one guy from a rival gang, they had all beat him up. And the guy hid in the alley with a gun. And then my brother came out the house going to the store, and my brother's light skinned and tall. And he came across my brother, and he was 32 years old. My brother was 16 at the time. And my brother got killed. Now, the, the alhamdulillah, you know, that could be, and he fought back and everything. It's one of the eight categories of a shahada, yeah. of the shahada. But prior to this, when my brother became Muslim, my mother kicked him out of the house. She actually kicked both of my brothers out of the house. They both became Muslim. My brother, who was 14, became Muslim, and my brother, who was 11. They both took the shots, right? But my mother said, you Christian in this house, or you got to get out. Wow. And what happened was uh, it was an Eid. So my brother took off school, and I picked him up. We all went to Salato Eid together. Mm-hmm. So he went to pray and stuff and had a good day celebration. And she that was the last straw for her. So she said, all right, don't come back. You're either Christian here or you get out. So he got out. None of my other relatives could take him in. I really couldn't take him in. I was living um, in the basement of my in-laws house with my wife, and my new baby. So there wasn't much space. But Alhamdulillah, um, one of my teachers, Sheikh Jazz, Hafizullah, had took him in and he taught him, you know, his tajweed with his salahs and Quran and things like that. And he stayed with him for a couple of months. And then he came back to my mother's house. And two weeks later is when he got killed. Wow. So. He was really around really good brothers and everything um, in the last months of his life and began to learn the dean wow. and got killed um, again when he was 16. So that was my brother Nasser. Then my father, his conversion was, <laughs> he, he saw me change. I see. He saw, saw you me change, change, yeah. Yeah, he saw me change and I became Muslim and I had my, my first child and he was like, well, I'm going to get her baptized again because he went to the same school and, you know, he, you know, they don't know anything about Islam. So he was telling me how he was going to get her baptized and things like that. And I'm like, no, you're not going to do that. It's not going to happen and so on and so forth. But he said, you know, you change. Something has you. I want to know what that is because mm. it must be powerful. But he saw the life that I was living with, you know, Robin being out in the streets, you know, being slick, just kind of being a miniature version of him. So what I did was I gave him a book by Ahmed Didat. Uh, mm-hmm. Rahimullah. Mm-hmm. 
called um what is it uh, christian muslim something mm-hmm. he, he has his famous books so christianity and islam something but it was like volume one and two and <laughs> it makes me laugh just even thinking about it but he, he digested the book in like a day wow. and the part that was the most um heartfelt to him that made the most sense to him was the exact same thing that made the most sense to me I was sort of to the class. Yeah, mashallah. So he read it and he was like, okay, this is, I have some questions. So he had a lot of questions and things like that. And he didn't take a shot or anything right away, but we were talking about Islam and I gave him some more books and, you know, his heart began to soften up. And I never would have thought that my father of all people would have become Muslim. Unless mm-hmm. you know, Allah's the best of plan. And my father was, he was an alcoholic, drug addict, you know, saw a lot of stuff that he'd done. And it was just, you know, I, I was not expecting that at all. So what happened, one day I picked him up. He wanted to learn more about Islam. And I said, hey, you know what? Let's go to um, Sheikh Hijaz's mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. So we went over there. We had some food because he, he's a Desi brother who lives in the UK for a long time. And uh, so he has a Desi UK accent. <laughs> he was in the U.S. A really loving brother, man. SubhanAllah. He's one of the people I really started learning true Islam from. But we went over there, we answered his question about Islam and some angels and th- different things like that. And, and then Shaky Jazz, surprisingly, he just said, you know, why don't you become Muslim? <laughs> he was close to say, hey, why don't you become Muslim? Repeat after me. Wow, and then he started saying the Shahada. And then my father repeated after him. And I, I almost cried right there. Like my father just took a Shahada, totally unexpected wow. and everything. So Alhamdulillah, he... Um, he took a shahada and then, you know, began to learn more and I began to teach him and lead him salat and, and stuff like that. And then um, in 2006, in June 2006, he found out he had lung cancer. I mean, he smoked ever since he was 16 years old, smoked cigarettes mm-hmm. and put all kind of other things in his body. So by September, September 19th, 2006, he died from lung cancer. Yeah. And, well, um, so. you know, I took care of this Salat al-Janazah and everything else over the objections of many of his siblings and, and stuff like that. But so those two people, alhamdulillah, they, they became Muslims and but they passed, you know, so I'm, I'm the patriarch, if you will, of my family now. But you have you know, your so family. You have more than 10. We have 10 kids, right? Inshallah, who's going <laughs> to leave your legacy. So tell me about them. Like you have 10 kids. Like, how is it like to live in a family with 10 kids? Well, well <laughs> it's a couple of things. One is that I have two wives, okay. so you know mm-hmm. that that makes it a, a little more leverage. And there's two homes, okay. so my wife Fatima and I we married 24 years. Mm-hmm. So we have seven children. I have four daughters and three sons. Okay. So my oldest daughter now. Here's the thing: usually we think 10 kids, we think of a lot of kids running around. We think of young children. Yeah. The good part is that's not necessarily the case. Okay. <laughs> Unless they're like twins and triplets and stuff like that, because um, my oldest child. Um, just turned 24. Wow. Mashallah. So she she's already graduated college. And my other then my next child, my next daughter, she's 22. Mm-hmm. Right? She stays at home with us. She just finished over at Bain Institute doing a dream program last year. Cool. And then uh, my 19-year-old, she's at home. She just graduated with honors. Then my 17-year-old, she's about to graduate high school. So they're older. You know, yeah. they're more helpers and stuff like that. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're not a burden at all now. Since they're driving, alhamdulillah, it makes things much easier <laughs> with running their younger brothers around. Because, again, four daughters are older from 24 to 17. I and then I have my sons. So they're 13, 12, 8, 7, 4, and 2. Mm. 
make sure I count all of them. Yeah. Well, one of <laughs> two in, in, uh, in January. So now I have six sons. So my second wife and I, we were married nine years. So I have 24 years and nine years of marriage. And for my second marriage, we have three um, biological sons. Then I also have two stepchildren. So it's really a dozen. Wow, okay. And I call them bonus children. <laughs> so the ages really make a difference because we really teach this three by three framework with outstanding Muslim parents. Okay. And basically there are three stages that our children really go through. And the first stage is obviously when they're young or infants up to about seven years old. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the first stage um, where they, they begin to have a, uh, the, you are the main influencer. So three by three means three stages. Mm -hmm. The the infants seven, and then there's the eight to kind of twelve or preteen years, mm -hmm. and then there's the teenager years. So those are the three stages our children really grow through before they become adults. Okay, or as they go into adults, I should okay. say. And then the roles that we have as parents, kind of label that as three C's. All right, three C's meaning celebrity, confidant, and coach. Mm -hmm. And that means that you, Maruf, are a celebrity, not just from Muslim on Fire podcast and the many other things <laughs> that you do, but you're a celebrity because in your children's eyes, especially in stage one, you are the one they look up to. You're a star. Absolutely. Now, here's the kicker. Mom, mom is the superstar. Umi, she is the superstar. Mm -hmm. OK, they want us after mom, maybe. Right. Mom's a superstar. Mm. So that means as a celebrity, we that we have that role model for so things that we do good or bad. They will imitate. Mm -hmm. I remember my father, again, like I said, they smoke cigarettes. Both my parents smoke. So I picked up one of his cigarettes when I was five years old, and I tried Whoa, to smoke it. Five years old. And he saw me, and I'm like, okay, what? You know, he told me, don't do that. And I'm like, well, you do that. He's like, well, yeah. don't do what I do. Do what I say do. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, at all. And, it, and you can't talk back to your parents. But I'm like, that's some of the dumbest advice ever. <laughs> you know? And he drunk beer and alcohol. I'm like, I want to drink some, but that's my dad. I want to be like my dad. And right? Said, don't do that again. <laughs> right. He's like, no, don't do that. I'm like, well, if it's good for you, how come is it good? It's not good for me. That's basic human logic. You know, so I wanted to make sure that I, I didn't do that to my children. I wanted to exemplify what I said I was going to do and what I want them to do. So I have to be congruent. I want to build that trust. So I'm not going to betray them by telling them these lies. And I'm also going to be congruent with them. So these are things that shaped kind of where we are. So as a celebrity, we have to be that good role model mm -hmm. and utilize our influence to kind of anchor their identities. The second part, the second C is confidant. Okay. The confidant is someone that they can go to and kind of share whatever is on their minds. Mm -hmm. And we have to be wise enough to help them read between the lines. Mm -hmm. So now when they're talking, oh, different terror attacks and so on, and, you know, first thing comes to mind by the media is, oh, this must be some Muslim mm -hmm. or some crazy thing. When in reality, you know, the biggest terrorists out there, we know that they're, they're not Muslims. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the challenge is that we have to help our children understand and read between the lines what's being said so that they can really function properly and consciously in society and make a progressive, positive change. So it's always like a so, keeping it, open, as you say, what you're trying to say is like confidant, but you mean is that we should be close to our children so they can always open up to us. They must... Uh, questions that they want to figure out they're always so what, what you're trying to say we have to be their close friends in a way isn't it like so they always they are, they're always welcome to talk to us in any topic at all we can always Psst. if you are an entrepreneur with a product or service for the muslim market let's get in touch we are halal.ad a marketing agency and ad network for the ever-growing muslim market 
we can help you reach millions of Muslims to grow your business. Visit www.halal.ad for a 30-minute free consultation. Now back to the show. Right. You should be approachable. You have to be open and approachable because as you, as they get older, that confidence kind of turns into being a consultant. I see. Okay. So they should be able to, if they have questions about sex or marriage or, you know, today they're going to have a lot of questions, a lot of different questions. Sure. I mean, society's saying, you know, hey, you're a boy, you have boy parts, but you feel like a girl inside. So you're a girl. Hmm. So there's a big trans agenda going on. There's LGTB thing going on. There's a conversation that must be had. Sure. You know, and as they get older, it goes from being that confidant to another level, being that consultant, because now they want your advice mm. or opinion on something or maybe some strategy or some help. But again, we have to actively work on being able to speak with our children, not only talking to our children. Mm. So that's the second role or second scene. The third one is the coach. The coach obviously cheerleads. The coach can see the potential of the player. The coach can see the rules and understands the rules of the game and can see the talent. But the coach must also enforce discipline. And what we mean at um, our Center Muslim Parents with discipline is not punishment. Discipline, for example, when we look at Islam, Islam is discipline. That was one of the things that initially turned me off about it when the guy was telling me about it. I was like, it's too disciplined. You know, you pray five times a day and all of this stuff. But the discipline is exactly what we need. So as a coach, we need to enforce discipline, meaning, you know, since Islam talks about when we pray, how to fast, you know, what times we do these different things, you know, what we must do at least once in our life. Islam, that's all about discipline and dis discipline provides order and structure. Hence, self-discipline is always looked at as a positive thing. You know, corrective discipline, that's usually where punishment, you might have to take a phone away or a child might have to get in push-up position or be in the, the horse position or something like that when they've done something wrong. You know, or it might elevate to a level of spanking or something, all right, depending mm. on the circumstances. But that's part of the coaching that happens. I see. Okay? Our role as a coach. And then the three E's is engage, equip, and empower. We must engage those conversations, understand how to ask a conversation versus, you know, how's your day today? Oh, mm. it's good. Okay, cool. Let me get back to my device. To asking something specific about their goals or what they're headed for or how something made them feel and why. Mm. And letting them know it's okay. You know, your emotions or to cry as a boy, your understanding. I mean, if the best person that ever lived the planet, the Prophet of Islam cried yeah. and was emotional, wasn't scared to show it, how are we in such a society that demeans it? You know, so there are things that we must do. So we engage, we equip with knowledge and information and history mm -hmm. and dean and etiquette and masculinity and femininity. We do this and then we empower by putting them off into the world, encouraging them letting them fail and getting the lessons from it. So even though I've experienced many different challenges in life, we all do. These things don't define us. The mm. difference is if we let these things affect us in a negative fashion by choice, or if we choose to get the lesson from it and help ourselves and others with that. So it's not what happens to us, but it's, it's what we think about what happens to us mm. that really makes the difference yeah so it's not about what happens but what it means and how we react to it right exactly exactly it's that meaning we put on it that's beautiful very beautiful by that note i think we we're gonna run up the what on this episode so why don't you 
why don't you tell the audience where they can find more about you, more about the, the, the if you, I, I believe you have course for parents. If those, for those of, of us who are listening as parents, they want to check out more, learn more, where can they find you, Brother Nadir? Oh, no problem at all. No problem at all. You can find us at outstandingmuslimparents.com. We have an, uh, an inner circle monthly where we do a live broadcast. We have worksheets and downloads and different courses and, and everything like that. So outstandingmuslimparents.com and the same on YouTube or Facebook. It's the same handle um, there as well. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, I thank you for sharing your life story. <laughs> Very emotional <laughs> moments with us. Uh, may Allah give you Baraka, um, blessing to whatever you do and, and, and increase your impact, you know, so you keep inspiring more Muslim parents so we end up having more, even more, you know, practicing Muslim children in the future. By that I say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Ameen. Assalamu alaikum. My question or topic for discussion is about parents and parenting. Whenever the subject comes up, it usually involves discussions on having ultimate respect for your parents, being good and kind to them, making sure that they're happy with you, which I agree we should do, absolutely. However, what's not often discussed is when parents are wrong. What does one do then? A lot of Muslims that I know have Muslim parents that don't necessarily follow Islam in the way that it's meant, in the way that it's taught, with peace, fairness, respect, a sense of humbleness. They don't necessarily set a good example, which isn't really realized until those children become adults themselves or realize at some point in their lives what's really right and really wrong. And for Muslim children growing up in non-Muslim countries or even in Muslim countries who are surrounded by various possibilities, different beliefs and cultures, you know, that clarity, that understanding, that consistency of practice and knowledge and deen, that sense of belonging is lacking. It's lacking and it's creating confusion, doubt, a deep sense of isolation. So how would you advise these Muslims or what would you say to them in regards to how to go about dealing with these parents? Oftentimes these parents thrive on control. So they say things like, if you go against me, disrespect me, or do anything against my wishes, you will be punished. You will be considered kafir. Allah will never forgive you. Things like this. And oftentimes also their anger stems from assumption and not the truth. So communicating with these personalities is a huge challenge. So how can these individuals, with parents like those, go about their lives, even when they're no longer children, with this parental umbrella that continues to harp on them in such a negative way? What can they do to peacefully and respectfully live their own lives while simultaneously trying not to be cursed or disowned by their own Muslim parents? Thank you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. In answer to the question, there are a few different dynamics that work here. Obviously, my parents were not Muslim, so it's different for me personally. However, I've come across many, many children and many Muslims whose parents um, don't necessarily practice Islam or they use that as a threat, kind of how um, Christians use their thing, you know, God won't love you, or they use it. It's, it's almost in an emotionally or uh, manipulative or abusive manner um, sometimes. But one of the things we find that is very effective 
is that one the child and usually these are teenagers or even older you know can forgive their parents one they just forgive them forgive them and understand that that's just an, an easy part I, I guess maybe not easy but this is just a part of their journey part of their test so for example um, your parents may say something that are, are against Islam and you're learning and you want to be more religious or whatnot and it's easy to just smile hug them and let you know that that you love them versus talking back or trying to argue or really demonstrating with your character the love and understanding that you have of Islam because from my my own example what I recognize is that it was up to me and my behavior to exemplify the principles of Islam to my non-Muslim parents okay and that's one one of the things that brought my father to Islam was him noticing a, a huge difference in me so we know that um, people abuse power it doesn't matter if we're talking about um, politicians or in large corporations and when people have power the current me too movement um, kind of sweeping, sweeping across the country people abuse power we we're tend to oppressing ourselves but a lot of Allah will not oppress us so what we can do as children is basically do what's right and in that spirit think about it Think about the blessing that we have for doing that. You're loving your parents. You're lowering the wing of humility, meaning that we can fly, but we're lowering our wings in their presence. So to basically obey them unless it's in something wrong, advise them in a sweet manner, smile at them. If they're saying something wrong, one of the things is to not take it personally. Maybe, again, they don't know. We don't necessarily know their traumas or their challenges or how they were raised, per se. Of course, we weren't there. And it could, you know, change over time, but it can be that kindness that wins them over and allows us to reparent ourselves. See, once we get to a point where we know what is right or we know that there's a better way or we know Islam is the answer and we're pursuing it, then there's no longer an excuse that we can allow ourselves to blame someone else. Well, I wasn't raised like this, or I didn't know that. I mean, when you have many Muslims that are coming from kufr to Islam, they're coming from disbelief to belief and having to find out how to live this lifestyle on their own. So one of the things I let the kids know, love your parents through it. We have examples in the Quran, for example, where you had children who were disobedient with looking at the sibling rivalry and everything that occurred with Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam, his brothers. Or you look at uh, Prophet Ibrahim, alayhi salam, and his father you know these stories are there for a reason or you look at prophet Nuh and his son you know chose disbelief and Allah Ta'ala let him know that he was not part of his family he may have been a relative but he was not part of the family so these are a small test for us and if we have parents who are Muslims we have to use our secret weapon and obviously the secret weapon of the believer is dua so pray for them very specifically for understanding pray for them to get guidance and to change for the better and to lean more in to Islam and understanding it. And one of the best ways is to do that is to be soft and to be gentle. As the Prophet that Aisha know that there is nothing that has gentleness put into it that except that it beautifies it. So let's beautify our actions, our behavior towards our parents and not allow them to, you know, uh, emotionally or religiously manipulate or abuse us. But our response to those things can be we can continue to, to learn Islam, continue to be tender with our parents, even when they're wrong. And one of the best ways to correct them is to ask a general question. 
So, for example, they say, well, you can't do this or Allah's not going to love you or don't do this. Or you're going to be in haram or hellfire or whatever. You disobey me where there's a truth. In it, and then there's other parts in it. One is to say, oh, wow, you know, hmm, I didn't know that. Or asking a question as in, you know, wow, okay, wow, that's, that's interesting that you say that. You're not agreeing, but you say, you know, it's interesting that you say that. Is there a hadith or something that, you know, and you're asking in a gentle matter, not, hey, okay, yeah, that's real interesting you say that. Where's the hadith? Where's the dalil? <laughs> not to ask in that fashion. And if it feels negative, then just don't do it at the moment. Just smile. Because, again, the smile is sadaqah period and one of the great things is that we're just now learning this with neuroscience but when you smile you begin to emit the happiness so even if you're not feeling good just the even a fake smile will conjure up some of the mirror neurons and different feel-good hormones like the oxytocin and dopamine to make you feel better even when you were not emotionally connecting at that time so a simple smile or a hug or an i love you to your parents even if they might not say it back a hug or an i love you or whatever to really break that pattern and change that state and thank allah to allah that you have muslim parents who you can pray for while they're here and while they're gone and i pray that allah to allah guides my mother to islam so that i can pray for her after she's gone if she goes before me i mean inshallah to allah that helped assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Dear listener, based on many requests from our listeners, we are launching a Muslims on Fire Academy. It's for those who want to do more than just listening. It's for those who not only want to be inspired, but to be one of the Muslims on Fire as well. It's for those who want to discover their purpose in life, follow their dreams, and live in prosperity. If this is you, join us for a journey of a lifetime. The introduction course is free. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com. Learn more at academy.muslimsonfire.com.